good and lasting stories are structured the same. Stories are told through the hero, the one who lives the story. Stories begin in the ordinary world, a place of comfort, a place where the hero must ultimately leave. Stories start with the inciting incident, without which there would be no story. And stories, good stories, are about deliverance. A journey that frees and redeems the hero and his world. But why? Because the purpose of story is new life. Little Simba, the future Lion King, frolicking on the Pride Lands when the inciting incident of his father's death makes him a fugitive. But through the call of his father, he's delivered from guilt, from shame. Why? So that everything can be different. So that Scar can be defeated, the Pride Lands can flourish, and the circle of life can keep on circling. Darling Dorothy, running away to save her little dog when the inciting incident of the twister drops her right in the middle of Oz. Lost. Until the guidance of the good witch delivers her from separation and loss. Why? So that everything can be different. So that she can understand the love of her family, the value of home, and even her dog Toto can be saved. The purpose of story is new life. Why is that? Well, who is the original author of story? And what kind of story is he trying to tell? The Story Act Three. Faithful Naomi, living in a pagan land, when the death of her husband makes her a widow. But through the love of her daughter-in-law, she's delivered from loneliness. And loving Ruth, a widow herself, struggling to support Naomi by scavenging in the fields, when the kindness of Boaz delivers her from poverty. Why? So that everything can be different. So that Naomi can be cared for, Ruth can have children, and the family line of Jesus can march on. And you, us, when God finds us in our ordinary worlds, a student, 
just, just trying to get through school, studying hard, a hardworking wife or husband, a comfortable retiree. When God allows that inciting incident to barge into our world, maybe, maybe it's a choice we've made just because we're trying to figure out who we are. Maybe it's an illness that threatens to destroy us or to defeat someone we love. Loss of a job, a broken family, or marriage. Then, God redeems us. He redeems us by delivering us from sin and judgment and death. Why? So that everything can be different. So that our minds and our hearts and our relationships can experience what love is and be made new. That's the purpose of his story. That's the purpose of his work in you. That's new life. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Not in the real world. Saul, chosen by God, crowned by Samuel as king of Israel. He divides a kingdom, disobeys God, and becomes a paranoid mess. So God sends David. And David takes his crown. And then David, a virtuous warrior, a man after God's own heart. He becomes a peeping Tom, steals a wife, and kills a husband. So God sends Nathan to wake him up. You've all read stories like this, haven't you? Of course you have where the hero desperately needs someone to come along and give him a helping hand, a word of advice, or just a good kick in the pants. Simba had his father. Dorothy had the good witch. Even Bilbo Baggins had Gandalf. And Luke Skywalker, <laughs> he had Obi-Wan and Yoda. But why? Because all good writers of stories instinctly know that the hero is not strong enough or brave enough or virtuous enough to save himself. And how do they know that? Because they see it every day in our real life story. But thank heaven, the author of our story isn't finished writing. And over and over, when we stand tall or we fall flat, when we beg for help or even just on our best day ever, God responds. He is actively involved every second of every day. And even when it seems that life is stuck, because of writer's block, God steps in, 
he turns the page and he writes something new. The story, Act Four. Well, we are back in the story, chapter 14. We have been spending the last uh, 13 weeks with a, a little break there for Christmas going through the story, which is taking us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation and giving us excerpts out of Scripture to give us a, a high-level view of the story of God and really finding out how we fit into this story. And so, if you will, let's open up to 1 Kings, where we are going to be today. Hopefully you have had a chance to read chapter 14 and are, are staying up with that reading schedule. If you are new with us and, and don't have a copy of the story, there's a stack of them on the table in the foyer, and you can take one of those with you and grab a reading guide there and jump in and join us on the reading schedule. So we're in chapter 14, and at the time, Solomon is the king, but he has disobeyed God. In our last chapter, we talked about the, the unraveling of Solomon, and, and things are not going well. And the kingdom begins to splinter into two, and things begin to unravel. And we see division. Division is a good word to describe our culture today, right? We look at politics and see division. We look at families and see division. We see churches and see division. Division is all around us. It, it breaks things apart and splinters things, but it's not God's will. God's desire is for us to be in harmony, to be in unity with one another, to love one another. And so we see this difference between the ideal of, of what God calls us to, this spirit of unity, and the realities that we see around us of division. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And then in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace with everyone. Too often we do not see this in the reality of, of the relationships that we have, of the churches that we're a part of, of the groups that we're involved with. We do not see a spirit of unity. Uh, you can look at a phone book in any small Texas town and see at least two churches of Christ because somebody can't get along with the other one. And so we live in a world of disunity, a world of brokenness. And we get to chapter 14 of the story and we see division happening here. We see a kingdom that has been ripped apart and torn in two. The chapter covers 1 Kings chapter 12 through 16. And so during the time of David and the time of Solomon, this, the nation of Israel is at its pinnacle. These are the glory days. Things are going great. They're amassing great wealth and having great building campaigns and, and there's peace through the time of Solomon and, and we see that, that everything is flourishing. Things are going well. Everything is great. But then everything spirals into chaos. And so today we're going to spend some time looking at what went wrong, trying to learn some lessons, looking at the pitfalls and how we can avoid those. And so after Solomon died, the nation of Israel was divided. 
There's ten tribes that align themselves with Jeroboam in the north, and that becomes known as Israel. And then Benjamin and Judah align around, Jer- uh, around Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and that becomes known as Judah in the south. And we have these two kingdoms that were once united that are now divided. It all starts back in 1 Kings 11 when when God picks Jeroboam to be the next king. And Solomon is not happy about this because Jeroboam is not his son. Jeroboam is just a member of the staff. And so what every good king would do is hunt Jeroboam down to kill him. And so Jeroboam flees, and he goes to Egypt, which is a great place to flee in, in Bible stories, right? We flee to Egypt, but then Solomon passes away, and things are safe again for Jeroboam. And in 1 Kings eleven forty three, then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, so, so Rehoboam, the, one, the son of Solomon, the one that Solomon wants to take the throne, now becomes king. All right, do you see a conflict beginning to arise here? You have the one that God has appointed as king, Jeroboam, and you have the one that man has appointed, Rehoboam. And so now we've got this conflict going back and forth. Two kings, something is not going to work out, right? And things get worse. And so as we go through this story, there's a few lessons for us. The first one is this. The past can bring division or unity in the future. The past can bring division or unity in the future. So you look at the past with Solomon, and you look at what has happened and the way things have derailed. And and the legacy of Solomon can either create division or it can create unity. And we see the brokenness of the end of Solomon's life, and we see it creating division instead of unity. The kingdom of Israel had split. So what happened in the past? What can can you go back to to see that has failed? And so we really see the reason that the split has happened is because there is a failed legacy of an unfaithful leader, Solomon. He is not followed in God's ways. We talked about that in chapter 13, and, and he is not leading in the way that God has called him to lead. He's accumulated great wealth, and he's been incredibly successful, but he did it the old-fashioned way, high taxes and forced labor. And so the, the burden on the people is high. The tax is high, the labor is high, and there is an overwhelming hardship and burden on the people. And that's how Solomon has built his kingdom. He's had aggressive building projects, and he's amassed great personal treasures, but it's been a hardship on the people. And so it's important for us to remember that the way we live today, the decisions that we make, the lifestyles that we have now will affect future generations. The choices that Solomon made affected the generations after him, and the same goes for us. The legacy that we leave behind can lead to hardships or it can lead to blessings. Funerals are often a time for us to reflect on the life of a person, and and we go to funerals where where there has been a great legacy that has been left. I remember my grandfather's funeral and just the outpouring of people that showed up because he had touched their lives in some way. Um, The the guy who shooed his horses showed up to the funeral. 
cowboy hat and boots and all, because something about being at my grandfather's house and shoeing his horses made an impact on him. And so you see the legacy that's left behind. We celebrated the life of Doug Buck, and if you were able to be at that service, you saw the legacy in his kids and grandkids as they spoke from this stage about the impact that their grandfather had had on their life. And so the decisions that we make, the lifestyles that we make, the, 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 the way we lead our lives will have an impact on the generations to come. Will it be a positive one or not? And we look at our own lives and think, man, I have messed up too much to possibly leave a good legacy. I've gone too far. It's been too much of a mess. I've made too many mistakes. Things have been broken. Things are not working right, and there is no way. But God specializes in allowing you, along with the Spirit, to change your story. He transforms your story, and He loves to write new endings to stories. We see that as we go through each and every one of these characters through this series. Each one of them is broken and messed up in some way. None of them start off, well, Adam and Eve, they started off okay. But after that, nobody starts off okay. God is using broken, messed up people and transforming their stories into something new. He is writing a new chapter that they weren't even expecting. And he does that to our stories. And so, from this day forward, what legacy are you leaving? How are you partnering with the Spirit to write a new chapter to leave a good legacy? It all begins with our willingness to make good choices and a willingness to change. Another lesson we learn from this chapter is counsel can hinder or help to build unity. Who are you asking for for advice? Who are your advisors? Who are your counselors? And this is a good lesson for all of us. It's especially a good lesson for this demographic over here, right? So who is giving you advice? Who are you seeking wisdom from? I can give you a hint of where it's not supposed to come from. And we're going to learn that from Rehoboam right here. For 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 8 through 11, a lesson for all of us and who we seek advice from. Remember, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. He's down in the southern section, and he seeks the counsel of two different groups of people. He seeks the counsel of the elders who have been around for a while, he's, and then he seeks the advice of his friends. All right? So, but Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? All right, so Rehoboam is asking, how should I lead the people? My father has been leading in a very harsh way, high taxes, high forced labor. What should I do as the new king? And he goes to the elders, and the, and the people who have been around for a while, the ones who have some life experience, they say, lighten up. The way your father has led is not helping the people. And if you follow in his footsteps, it's not going to be, it's not going to end well for you. And so the elders say, do something different. But Rehoboam goes to his peers. 
he goes to his friends and says, what advice do you have for this decision that I have to make? And they say, get even harsher. Continuing on in verse 10, the young men who had grown up with them replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on, his, on us, but make your yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. This is a great strategy, right? All right, so we're going to lead. And first thing out of, out of the gate as the new king is I'm going to come tell the people my pinky is bigger than my father. And I'm not going to whip you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. This is a great leadership decision, right? Things go well, right? No. The people rebel. They follow Jeroboam and the nation splits, right? Following the advice of our peers is not always a good thing. It results in the northern tribes separating from the south and Israel was totally fractured and the whole nation was divided because Rehoboam followed bad advice. We've been asking this question, God, what are you saying to me? We ask ourselves this at the end of every service and and, and in your personal prayer time, God, what are you saying to me? And we discern what God is saying in three ways. First, we look at the Word of God. God is saying something to us, and that's why we're spending all this time going through the story. God, what are you saying to me through your Word? But then we also pray for God's wisdom. God, speak to me in some way and give me wisdom to discern what it is you're calling me to. But then third, we seek godly counsel. We seek people in community to help weigh out what it is that God is calling us to. What is God saying to me? It's not something that's done in isolation. It's something that we do with others. I remember as I was contemplating whether or not to propose to this girl, Laura, um, I, was, I was uncertain if, if I should propose, partly because we weren't even dating at the time. And so... Um, that's a story for another time. But we had been dating, but we weren't dating. And so I was de- deciding whether or not I should propose. And I remember driving from, I think it was Clovis to Albuquerque with Brent McCall. We were doing some consulting work down there. And we were driving and, and having this conversation about whether or not to propose. And I was seeking his counsel on what to do. And he said, if you marry Laura, there is a chance that you will be a father sooner than you expected. Because Bonnie and Elena were attached to Laura. And we did not know at the time what that would be. And so the decision, the decision to marry meant something more than just marrying a person. And I sought godly counsel in that. As we made the choice years later, on whether or not to, to bring Bonnie and Elena into our home. I, I sat down with, with one of my mentors, Tim Ketcherson, at the branch and said, what do we do? We have no kids. None of our friends have kids. And here we are talking about having kids that are much older than a newborn. And his advice to me 
and his counsel to me was this decision has the potential to make you or break you as a couple. And so it is a heavy decision to make. God can use this in incredible ways if you will work with him in this. But if you try to do it yourself, it's not going to work. And so we sought godly counsel in that. As we made the decision to move here, we met with every one of our advisors and said, God, what are you saying to us? We need somebody to speak into this for us. And so how we seek advice can drastically shape the course of our lives. We are not designed to do these things in isolation. We're not designed to do these things on our own. We are not smart enough to make good decisions by ourselves. We need God's wisdom, we need his word, and we need his counselors to speak into this. And so don't do it alone. But the key to answering this question of, God, what are you saying to me, even more important than that, is following through. What are you going to do about it? Because God can be screaming at you to do something, but you actually have to do it. You have to be obedient to what he's calling you into. But too often we do our own thing, just like Rehoboam. He got this counsel from the elders. He knew what he was supposed to do, but he wanted to do his own thing. And when we do that, we fall short. And so there became this continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the north and the south. And listening to ungodly counsel caused the tensions to escalate. It's important for us to seek Christian counsel, ones who share the Christian worldview. Titus gives us an important example of this. In, in Titus chapter 2, he says, Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. We're to encourage those that are younger. We're supposed to serve as that counsel and insist in good decision-making. And so for those who find themselves in a mature spot, how are you reaching out to the younger ones to be able to speak into their lives? How are you building relationships with them so you can be a counselor to them? And for those who are in a younger spot, and I think last week or two weeks ago, we talked about how everyone in the room is younger and older than somebody. And so for the young ones in the room, which is all of us, who are you seeking to be a counselor to you? Who do you get that advice from? A third lesson, a solid faith in the truth creates unity. A solid faith in the truth creates unity. And so for peace to prevail, you have to choose the right God. There has to be a solid faith in the truth. You have to be believing in the same God. We see Rehoboam and the mistakes that he makes by, by going to the wrong counselors, but Jeroboam is just as, as much of a mess. He gets bad advice as well. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, Jeroboam thought to himself, see he's, he's thinking himself, which is not a good start, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. So remember, he's in the group that has splintered off to the north. 
And he says the kingdom is now likely to revert back to the house of David, back to the south, back to Judah. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So he's saying Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom, if the people have to go on a pilgrimage back down to Jerusalem, they're going to get stuck there and they're going to have allegiances back to Rehoboam and the south. So he's got to protect his power. After seeking advice, seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, and people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. And so he seeks advice, and I don't know who he's getting this advice from because apparently they did not remember all of this story over here where they had had this calf once before already, and things did not go well, right? And so he has this genius plan of, okay, I'll have two calves, right? And so we're going to have these golden calves, and these will be the places of worship. We don't want to have to commute down to Jerusalem, so we're going to put one here close by so you can come and worship here, all really to protect his power, to protect his kingdom. And he doesn't remember the sins of the past. All he cares about is his own kingdom. He does his own thing. And so are you ever like Jeroboam? You go totally against what God is calling you to, what God wants. It's very clear that God is saying, do this, don't do this, go this direction. But God, he's calling you into this. But you say, yeah, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm smart enough to handle it myself. You go totally against what God wants because you're looking out for yourself. But then Jeroboam doesn't stop there. He then goes on to appoint inappropriate priests, and makes all kinds of bad decisions. And God responds in this way in 1 Kings 14. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourselves other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. So God's angry. God is mad because the person that he had appointed, remember this is the one that God anointed to be king. God chose this guy. And now he's turning his back on God, setting up idols and creating his own religious system. And so Jeroboam is just a mess. But Rehoboam is not any better. There's like this competition between the two of them to be worse than the other one. And so in 1 Kings 14, verse 25, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam decides to solve this problem and made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance of the royal palace. And so Rehoboam is king and things do not go well for him. Egypt comes in and attacks and they take everything. 
this glorious temple that's been built and, and all of the, 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 the things that have been put in the temple are now stolen and gone. And so Rehoboam goes and replaces it with really inappropriate things. A less than, a second class kind of thing. He's not going to replace it with gold. He's going to replace it with something much cheaper. He's going to replace it with bronze. He's going to do it his way. And so we see Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and try not to get the two Boams confused, and we see these two guys in this competition of who's worse. And these are sad, sad stories. And we see them making these mistakes. But there's good news. The story doesn't end there. There is a king that follows Rehoboam, the third king of Judah, and his name is Asa, Asa. The grandson of Solomon, Asa, is a good guy. It's nice and refreshing to have a king who will come in and, and follow in the Lord's ways. Even though his father was a sinful man and his mom was a pagan, he becomes one of Judah's most godly kings. Asa is, is one who doesn't listen to the advice of his parents. He's one who comes in and clears out the idols he has a pagan grandmother who has an Asherah pole in her front yard, and he, he goes down and, and cuts down this Asherah pole, and he, he burns it. He deposed his grandmother from her role of queen mother. He comes through, and he's trying to clean house because he wants to do what's right in the eyes of God. And he redeems this line of kings. 1 Kings 15 tells us that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He also tells us that Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all of his life. And so we have a king who comes along and redeems the mess of a situation that he's inherited. And so we have a choice. What kind of legacy are we going to live? What kind of decisions are we going to make? What kind of counsel are we going to seek? Asa had a heart that was fully committed to God, fully committed to doing what was right. If we want to be remembered for the right things, we need to make the right decisions. We need to make the right choices in our day-to-day -day lives, and it's, it's accumulation of all of our choices. He wants us to follow him and leave a legacy that points others to him. God is faithfully working to make good on his promise. We see the promise of God to, to redeem us and save us. We see this throughout the story. When his people sin, he responds. When his people repent, he responds. When he seems that he's distant and doesn't make sense, give him some time and he'll respond. And when it seems like your story is coming to an end, he steps in, he turns the page, and he writes another chapter. Let's be standing. God is writing and rewriting our stories. But he wants our participation in that. He wants us to be, to be faithfully listening to him and obeying him. He wants us to be learners of him that, that hear his teachings and learn from him and make decisions based on that learning to be obedient and faithful to how he's called us to be. 
And so we're going to spend some time in prayer. You can come forward and pray with one of the shepherds. You can pray in groups or, or as couples or friends or small groups. You can move across the aisles and pray for people that you see that you know need prayer. This is a time for us to be praying, God, what are you saying to me? As we look at this story of this, this kingdom torn in two, the stories of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and, and then later Asa who comes in and faithfully cleans house, God, what are you saying to me in this? And what am I going to do about it? Let's be obedient to the call that he has on each of us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to, to spend time sharing and, and talking about you and your kingdom. God, I pray that you help us to hear you clearly and help us to be obedient to what you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.